Hello, and welcome to Voicing Across Distance. This is Episode 6, Dangerous Voices, Future Choral Practices, Multivocality. My name is Masi Asari. There are three main parts to this podcast, a vocal exercise from a practitioner, a conversation with a scholar on voices in our time of COVID-19, and a reading from a book on voice. This week, I also open with a brief reflection of my own. Then I speak with choral conductor and professor Derek Fox, who shares an exercise from his Future Choral Teaching Practices Initiative. Next, I'll be in conversation with ethnomusicologist Catherine Mizell, and we'll close by reading together an excerpt from her new book, Multivocality, Singing on the Borders of Identity. I also want to give the credits now for a few clips of interstitial music featured on this episode. First, the viral protest song, Lose Your Job, which is from the improvisation of Janiqua Charles, remixed by DJ Suede and DJ Imarquis. Second, the choral piece, Lineage, by Andrea Ramsey, performed by the University of Nebraska at Omaha Chamber Treble Ensemble, conducted by Derek Fox. And additionally, the song, One Voice, performed here by the Cystic Fibrosis Virtual Choir. Before I turn to my guest speakers, I have a little bit to say by way of context and reflection. Why are you detaining me? You about to lose your job. You about to lose your job. Get this dance. You about to lose your job because you are detaining me for nothing. You about to lose your job. The virus and the voice, and I mean the voice as that which wields, aerosolizes, and spreads the virus. The virus and the voice, as well as increasing public awareness of the system of white supremacy that forms the bedrock of this nation, and maybe that sounds scary to you or exaggerated, but by this I mean the deep systemic racism that underlies life in the United States, fortified by beliefs consciously or unconsciously held, that white people are superior to people of other races. It's a system in which so many of us are complicit to varying degrees via entrenched and often unconscious internalized beliefs in things as simple as which kinds of people belong where, which kinds of people are more or less deserving or intelligent, who is dangerous and should be policed, who has the potential to hold real power. These three elements of what is now our everyday life virus, voice, and systemic racism have something in common. They all call urgently for a recognition of the ways that individuals are related to one another in interdependent dynamic systems, public health systems, the imbrications by which I mean interwovenness and violences of particular economic and criminal justice systems. It seems apropos that much of today's episode addresses choral practices. The United States is not, as some might wish to declare, a nation of soloists. And it is increasingly clear that the emphatic national narrative of individualism and self-made bootstrapped accomplishment is, more than misguided, profoundly dangerous. 
The simple act of wearing a face mask has to do with recognizing that danger flows in multiple directions. It is not just about protecting oneself from danger, but also about protecting those to whom one is inextricably connected. The conditions of the coronavirus COVID-19 in combination with the present and historical circumstances of this nation result in a certain paradox around voice right now. This paradox requires the loss of voice, the loss of singing voices, or the need to route them through different channels to alleviate their danger, a routing that can also open up important access for voices that may sing more softly. As Dr. Catherine Mizell points out in this podcast, our virtual interconnectedness during the pandemic has the potential to make more space in the choir for disabled persons who might not have had the possibility to join otherwise. So at the same time that our present conditions require grappling with the loss of singing voices as they were due to the danger they now carry, these conditions also advance the vital need to recognize the power that voices calling loudly for change can have and the meaningful damage that such dangerous voices can inflict on the deeply racist state and its institutions. As my conversation with Dr. Mizell on June 9th helped clarify for me, Danger flows in multiple directions, and loss is multivalent. I recorded my conversation with Dr. Derek Fox earlier on May 29th, which was just a few days after George Floyd was killed brutally at the hands of Minneapolis police officers, and before the country and the world witnessed the groundswell of protest and public outcry we have seen since. It was before there were any of the shifts toward enacting actual change that have started to come into play this past week, with the decision of Minneapolis to disband its police department, the commitment from Los Angeles to cut upwards of $250 million from its $1.8 billion police budget to invest in community programs, and New York City to repeal the 50A law shielding police discipline records from public view. On the day Dr. Fox and I recorded, it felt like we were living through just one more replay of the violent death of another black person in the US. Not long after Breonna Taylor was shot and killed by police while sleeping in her own home in Louisville, and the list goes on. It was also the same day I woke up and saw first thing in the morning that the president of the United States had called protesters thugs and threatened military intervention. The conversation and care of spending time speaking with Derek on that day meant a lot to me. This was also before the hashtag Black in the Ivory gained the momentum it has on social media in recent days, airing the appalling treatment that so often comes with the work of being Black in the Ivory Tower. Simply doing the work of being a Black academic requires deep commitment, energy, and fortitude, and I am grateful to Derek, to Dr. Fox, for joining me in that effort, for his example and companionship. I remain convinced that our scholarship and teaching are a vital part of the effort to make change, to refashion old and outworn systems, and to hold space for new and multiple vocalities in our midst.
I'm so delighted to welcome Derek Fox, who is joining me vocally as our guest vocal practitioner for this episode. Dr. Derek Fox is the Director of Choral Activities at the University of Nebraska Omaha. He earned degrees from Arkansas State University, the University of Missouri-Columbia, and Michigan State University. Dr. Fox has conducted, presented, and held residencies throughout the U.S. and internationally. He conducted the 2019 National ACDAMSJH Honor Choir and traveled to South Africa with the ACDAICEP. He is a published author and contributed to the Hal Leonard McGraw-Hill Voices in Concert textbook. His compositions and arrangements are published by Hal Leonard and Briley Music, and his book, Yes You Can, A Band Director's Guide to Teaching Choirs, is published by Carl Fisher. He launched the Derek Fox Choral Series with Music Spoke to highlight works by and about marginalized, underrepresented people. Dr. Fox, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yay! I'm so excited that I'm getting to connect with you. I potentially shouldn't put this on the podcast, but I met you years and years ago <laughs> doing know. summer stock. Yes, ragtime. Ragtime. You know who I was talking to this morning was Lynn Ahrens. Are you serious? Inventor oh of my mine. God. <laughs> so yeah, it's so funny. Our ragtime connections continue to this day. I know. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, and since then, I mean, I probably, I think I saw you once briefly years ago when you were teaching at Ithaca. Yeah, that's I right. Think. That's but right. Other than that, I, it's been like decades. It's been know? decades. Yeah, I was teaching junior high school. That was probably early 2000s when we did that at uh, Merry-Go-Round Playhouse. What, what used to be Merry-Go-Round Playhouse. Oh, did they change the name? It changed the names. That's how old we are. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you for making sure everybody now knows that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So anyway... Let's put that to the side, the question of our age and flourishing. We are flourishing <laughs> since that time. That's right. Um, despite the news and, and the, all the pressures of the day. So I know that you have launched a new project around choral teaching, um, future choral, future practices of choral directing in the mm-hmm. age of COVID, as I understand. And I hope you'll tell us more about it. I'm sure I didn't say that quite right. But I saw <laughs> on my social media channels that this may have come about in response to that big webinar that NATS, the National Association of Teachers of Singing, and I know the Choral Directors, I guess, Association also mm-hmm. shared some information about mm-hmm. how dangerous it can be to sing and to yeah. sing together in the age of the coronavirus. So the the group I've started is called the Professional Choral Collective, and it came about uh It was kind of interesting. It came about around the same time as that podcast in which we were given lots of information about or lots of information we had at the time about singing and aerosolization and how much the virus can be in aerosols. And it was pretty much the very beginning of this process. And we can tell now that even from then to now, there's so much more that has been learned. But what I took from that actually started earlier when I saw folks in my profession responding to Um, The fact that we had to stop teaching in the middle of our semester choirs Mm -hmm. and so many of my colleagues or enough of my colleagues got got my attention through their continued posts of their grief and their sadness and um, their, their, their longing for choir. And I started to realize that if we in the profession 
don't move to start creating the narrative that is going to help us be successful in the fall and really mm-hmm. to keep our jobs moving beyond the fall and next spring, mm-hmm. we're going to be in trouble. So we had to start to coalesce and come up with ideas and plans that I listed as future teaching practices. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the most elegant name, but it's the best I could come up with, with two young kids under age five crawling up and down me like a tower <laughs> in the middle of the day. <laughs> but Amazing. I thought that's where we're going to start. And yeah. it's going to empower teachers to, to create lessons that will allow them to deliver choral music in the way that they need to in their community. And the, the crux of this is that we need to be able to pivot with mm-hmm. whatever information the science gives us at that at that time we're ready to walk into the classroom. We mm-hmm. need to be ready to pivot. None of us core directors, most of us aren't scientists, but we are the masters of our craft of choral music. And we should be able to take our knowledge around that and make it shift and move around whatever the science says at that time we enter into the classroom. It, it's also rooted in the idea to empower teachers mm-hmm. to be in charge. Often in a lot of professions, we look for the person to give us the knowledge that we mm-hmm. need to be able to do our jobs when all along we possess that ability. And even mm-hmm. though we may not present at that national convention or conduct those all state choirs, it doesn't mean that we don't possess those same skills to be as effective for the communities in which we reside and teach. And so mm-hmm. we have sessions with middle school, junior high school teachers this is what I just did. And we have high school teachers that are coming up on Monday. And I encourage them through modeling of creating lessons to create their own lessons and to also recognize they have the power to communicate with each other. You don't have to wait for me. So I've actually mm-hmm. set up a structure that people submit lessons. You should submit how we can, someone can contact you. And if someone reads your lesson and decides I could do this, but it doesn't fit perfectly mm-hmm. into my situation, I, I can call them. I can reach out to them and talk through mm-hmm. that, uh, that idea because we often feel um, lost and and without when we when we feel like we're in it by ourselves and yeah. we actually aren't right and so that's what the whole purpose of this project is and i'm delighted to say mm-hmm. that it's a model that has been that has been um carried forth by some other organizations which is the point of this i don't i'm not using this as a platform for myself but i'm using it as a platform on which all of us can stand to help build our community up mm-hmm. and to move forward in a really positive way for the purposes of choral music and for the purposes of our students because we need that music particularly for the social emotional learning that's going to need to take place in the fall wow i knew when i saw glimpses of this online that i needed to hear more about this because it just sounds i i think you know everybody's using that word pivot and all my dancer friends have extra combinations to add to it but you know everybody (laughs) is is talking about how we have to be able to pivot in this mm-hmm. moment, because uh, the slower we are to make these shifts, the harder, I agree, the harder it's going to be in the long term. So how many people are joining? I know you do Zoom conversations. Yeah. How many people are joining for these? Well, so we had initially we had in the collective, we have right now 410 people who wow. are part of the collective. This has just been in a couple of weeks, right, Derek? This is just in a couple of weeks. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is this is probably the third week, maybe the end of the into the third week, mm-hmm. fourth week, somewhere in there. Um, but within those groups, I've allowed people to identify the areas that they that their particular jobs are most centered around. Mm-hmm. And so for the last session, 
we had 86 people um, say they were open to joining us. But of course, life happens. And we had about 50 of those people join us for the actual mm-hmm. works. I call it a work session, not a brainstorming, because what I've seen is we've had webinars where, a, you know, a panel of people will talk and then you can send in your questions and maybe they'll get answers. Mm-hmm. Or we've had this model where we get groups of people together and we all kind of um, elaborate on our on our own experiences, but we don't ever really get to enough solutions, or maybe we never even get to solutions mm-hmm. because people are so interested in talking about their own, yeah. expressing their own feelings and emotions. So with these sessions, what I do is it's structured, and I have uh, colleagues who I call facilitators, and mm-hmm. I've given them some guidelines. And at the beginning, I'll spend time introducing um, what, what our purpose is, what our goals are, how we stay on track. Mm -hmm. I'll give model lessons. And then we actually go into breakout sessions where people can connect with people from around the country in groups of 10 or less Mm -hmm. with the goal of creating one or two future teaching practices using the form that I've created. That's very, that guides you through the process. Mm -hmm. And then we, we do 25 minutes of intense focused discussion. Um, and one of the, one of the guidelines is, um, you can talk, but we can. We have to make sure we don't go into that gloom and doom space mm-hmm. because this is about productivity. Mm-hmm. And once we come out of that 25-minute session, we do an overall share. Each group talks about what they did and what they came up with. Mm-hmm. And out of that, in 25 minutes, we get last time we did it, we had six groups. We had seven new lessons mm-hmm. that I upload to shared folders for anybody to access after that work session is over. And the, the comments afterwards. And then at the end of that, sorry, the breakout yeah. sessions, I come back and I give us some next steps for moving forward uh-huh. and what we're going to do in our in our next next rounds. Um, and the response has been that people have appreciated the positivity, yeah. the forward momentum of the meetings, mm-hmm. and everybody feels gets the chance to talk and be heard which is really important in this process, right? Right. People want to be heard. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the model that has carried us to a place of positivity and productivity. And the next level of this, I've already secured a composer to do this, Mm -hmm. is beginning to connect composers with schools who might be interested in composition projects. Not all teachers are equipped to do that. So I have a composer who does sessions, uh, 90-minute sessions with their students to create works that have now been connected with publishers who will publish them. And that's going to be the next level of, of the, uh, the uh, professional core collective and how we get teachers to connect for the future. I'm so intrigued on this composer thing. As you may or may not know, I'm part of a women composers collective, primarily for the theater. Oh. But um, this is great to know about this. And I, I bet there are some folks in that group that might be interested are people composing things specifically like that are for the new technology or no no literally it's he um the composer's jim papoulis and he's a friend of mine and i went with him because i know he's been doing this for a while and it's it's music that he leads them through this process of coming up with a text that reflects the particular group Uh that is in in it he writes the music around it and it's usually two sessions of 90 minutes and he comes back with a full piece and then they can integrate it into their online rehearsal process that they use or some of us will have to do a hybrid process where we have some students in class based on the uh, the parameters that are set forth by the schools and some mm-hmm. of those students will have to be online. Mm-hmm. But, um, and he's connected with a publisher that's going to publish these works. So students will have that, that's fantastic. that physical, you know, that Something tangible item to. that has their name on it, which is very, 
which would be missing for some of them, that in-person, something to touch, something yeah. to feel. I love this. This is amazing. So Derek, if somebody wants to know more about this amazing work that you're doing or become involved, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, if they're interested in being a part of the conversations and and uh, if they're teachers or educators who are interested, and we're doing this so far, I'm bringing in people to help me do this from elementary all the way through college, community church, and semi-professional and professional choirs. Mm-hmm. You can email me um, at D-A-F-O-X, Defox, yes. at unomaha.edu, and I'll send that to you, Monsi, so you can see that. Okay, cool. And um, if you're interested in... Um, creating practices i'll also send you the link to the google form Uh but if you're interested in being a part of this composer initiative and leading workshops with choirs that help them produce music that they can sing and and maybe create a virtual choir around it or virtual singing i like to say you can email me at that same address and we can figure out how to weave you in or i can talk to you about your offerings and Mm -hmm. i can tell you if that's something that will fit the needs that Mm -hmm. teachers are looking for one of the principles of this is making sure we meet the needs of the teachers. Right. Um, and if, if what you have to offer is something you feel like you can be, you feel like your voice is still authentic in the process. I don't want you to do anything where you have to change what you believe is you. Right. Right. Um, then contact me and we can talk about how to make that work. Wow. Derek, I, I just knew that I could, I mean, from my little glimpse into the social media-ness of what I saw, I was like, Derek is leading the charge. And this sounds really amazing. I mean, <laughs> and this is a time where we really, uh, in so many spheres of our lives, we really, uh, good leadership and strong leadership and forward-thinking leadership really counts. So I, I'm just so glad to know you and, the, and to know that you're doing doing all of these things. Um, I want to ask you maybe a little bit more specifically about the conversations. Is there anything, maybe what are some of the most exciting or surprising things that have come out of this process for you so far these past few weeks? Yeah, what's really exciting is hearing teachers say to me, this this being a part of this session or this collective has really changed the direction that I'm thinking about now. I've moved from this place of mourning a loss to thinking of positively about how can I still provide um, choral music in the lives of the students uh, that are going to be in my in my rooms, and mm-hmm. that has been that has been just um, exciting to hear, and mm-hmm. it's been humbling to hear that. I can be a part of something that makes makes people feel that way. Uh, yeah. People who have been in, in the in the profession much longer than I have been have expressed that, and to to also see that um, people are willing to engage and be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Most uh, most people will say, "I don't know what I can what I can add to the process," and then once they go through the process, they'll go, "Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. I didn't even realize that this is what this was going to be. This is one of the uh, one of the." some of the most productive time I've spent on a Zoom, considering that we're, yes. all, we're all Zoomed out. Yes, we live on that's Zoom. Been, exactly. That's been pretty, that's been very significant. And the ideas that have come forth uh-huh. have been um, have been very exciting to see. And I'm also benefiting from being part of this because I'll be teaching choral music in the fall and I'll be teaching future choral teachers. Mm-hmm. And this is this will help guide my own curriculum. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, this is great. So now, as you know, I have a couple different parts to the podcast, although... I haven't been, my, my categories are getting less and less strict, <laughs> but in theory, in theory, there's a part of the podcast where a practitioner, so in this case, you will mm-hmm. share a vocal exercise with us. Now I, I'm kind of understanding that in very broad terms. So maybe there's 
a piece of a lesson plan or some, but something implementable, something that relates uh-huh. to bringing voices into the world in this time of social distance um, mm-hmm. that you could share with us that we could take away. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the key components, and we talked about this before we earlier on, mm-hmm. is social emotional learning. Mm-hmm. And we often talk about how choir and choirs are integral in creating community for people and helping people feel um, representing diversity, equity, inclusion, but also making people feel like they belong. Mm-hmm. And so one of the lessons that I created and put into the collective was I included a piece entitled Lineage by one of my longtime friends, maybe 20 five or 26 plus years um she composed that piece mm-hmm. and it's a, and it talks about how strong her grandmothers were and how mm. much they how much of a role they had in their lives and so what i what i did when we were meeting in person is i had the singers in my choir it was a trouble choir i had them go and interview somebody in their family mm-hmm. who represents that the the strength in that grandmother it didn't have to be a grandmother <laughs> it was someone Derek. who represented that strength and so they went and inter- interviewed those yeah. those people because how often do we talk to our people in our lives about what made them strong yeah what made you get up every day and stand tall so that so that i could be here or what made you so strong because you played a significant role in my life and so they went back and did those interviews for those students well and then we use those in our concert as quotes before each song that we sing. Wow. And so what I've told the students on in virtual, a, a virtual lesson around that would be choose a song that you're going to do in the fall that has that kind of a message. And then ask your students to go and do a Zoom interview, maybe with a grandparent that they can't touch or see or hug anymore because of the you know the mm-hmm. ramifications of the pandemic mm-hmm. and then they come back to class and you can read those and learn more about that student maybe ask them specific questions about them and if those students are okay and it also will help you build lessons that would work across you know a week or two if it's okay for them to share those lessons maybe as an as an ending to a class mm-hmm. or beginning to a class so that we all realize that we're in this together Mm-hmm. And we encourage students to open up conversation within their within their uh, family because let me tell you, mm-hmm. ten or eleven weeks of everybody being in the house together can yeah. start to get a little rough. <laughs> and so we can we can use our we can yeah. use our role as educators to do that. And so the reason why I share that with you is because we talked about ways that composers from you know the collective that you're in could be a part of this. This is if you have songs that can offer. An opportunity like that, it could mm-hmm. even be a unison song because a lot of us are going to go back to doing music that is just unison. Interesting. Because polyphonic music is really difficult sometimes if you are working with choirs that are not really skilled yeah. to do virtually. Yeah. So even if it's just a unison song with a, you know, with a with a piano part, wow. if you have something that could set up a, a learning experience in a classroom like that, share that with in the teaching practice or you know be willing to come to uh, one of my uh, work sessions mm-hmm. with the teachers and I'll give you 10 minutes to talk about how a teacher can implement that lesson within their classroom and I can guide you through the teacher teacher language mm-hmm. if you're not familiar with that but yeah that's that's the, those are the things we're looking that is amazing Jack I'm really moved I'm really moved by this assignment and I think not only just like the care with which you're, or I can tell you're organizing these sessions, but also because I'm certain that those interviews that your students had with their elders mm-hmm. affected the way they sang the song. Oh, yes. 
Yeah. Absolutely. They were able to embody the music because they were able to, that music was a reflection of the feelings that they had based on that conversation, yeah. as opposed to us trying to figure out what the composer wanted. Yeah. That's, that can be kind of difficult sometimes, um, uh-huh. especially when you're working with students who are, who um, don't come from families that are always viewed as the right kind of family. So yeah. I have students who came from a single parent home mm-hmm. and sometimes we're not led to believe that that's the, that's the family kind of family that produces productive children. I came yeah. from a single parent home, mm-hmm. um, but giving them that Avenue to say, talk to anyone in your family mm-hmm. or anyone who you view as family. That's right. About them. Uh, I had a student who was, who was adopted, who is adopted mm-hmm. and it allowed them to open up conversations in their family that, that they may not have been able to have prior to this. She um, spoke that to me and it was very powerful. I didn't do this with that as the intent, uh-huh. but I, but I knew that people would take it in whatever direction they needed to. And I would come back and receive what, what they brought. Uh, and for everybody else in the room to hear that was great to create community because we got to see all different manifestations of what strength looks like yeah. in people's lives. Oh, this is amazing. And I and I feel like I really needed this exercise today. The world is <laughs> really falling apart and um, as it always is, but it feels like more so this week. And yeah. Um, yeah. we all do need strength and... Um, and we need to, and I think also what you're saying makes me feel like there's a way that our feelings, we have the opportunity to directly experience our feelings right now. We exactly. may be stuck in a room with them, <laughs> in addition yeah. to the family members. <laughs> and so if there's a way that we can use that access to strengthen our vocal performance mm-hmm. in this time, that that can be worthwhile. Yeah, I told my, I tell all the teachers, we have a time now to really focus on all of the singular components um, that we may not always focus on when we have everybody in the same room. So then mm-hmm. when we get back into the same room, we'll be even stronger. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Derek. This was wonderful. You are so welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. This is the sound of all of us. Singing with love and the will to Thrilled to welcome my guest scholar for this episode, Catherine Mizell. Catherine Mizell is Associate Professor of Ethnomusicology at Bowling Green State University. Her book, Idolized, Music, Media, and Identity in American Idol from Indiana University Press was published in 2011. And more recently, Multivocality, Singing on the Borders of Identity from Oxford University Press just came out in January, 2020. Other work has appeared on Slate.com, NPR.org, NewRepublic.com, and TheConversation.com, and she also recently co-edited the Oxford Handbook of Voice Studies in 2019. She holds bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in vocal performance as well as a PhD in ethnomusicology. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Yay, I'm so delighted to do this. It's really a spot of joy in some challenging times, and I'm so excited about your book. Congratulations again. 
Thank you. It is a joy for me as well. Yay. So uh, we have a list of kind of topics that we want to go through. Um, and, and I know we, you know, we spoke a couple weeks ago and then so much has been happening in the world since that time. But maybe we'll sort of, as we go along, if there are things you want to weave in that have come up um, more recently, we'll make sure to do that. Does that sound good? Sure. Okay, great. So when we spoke last, you mentioned that you have a lot of friends who are singers and teach voice, and this community of practitioners is grappling, you know, in a lot, in a lot of ways, online, in social media, um, grappling with the scientific guidance that singing right now in the age of the coronavirus is a dangerous act. And as you know from my own doctoral work, and I want to thank you for citing my dissertation uh, in, in your in your book, um, I've also been interested in the extent to which voices are or aren't considered healthful, um, which can sometimes tie to racialized genres and fears around vocal contamination or ruin. But kind of aside from that, we are presently in a new chapter of the medicalizing and pathologizing of singing. So. As we start off here, I wanted to ask you what you make of this. What is to be made of the extent to which all voices, and especially singing voices, are now considered dangerous? Well, it seems like it's a work in progress, like it's something that I have to keep an eye on because things change from day to day. Mm -hmm. What we had talked about before was a webinar that um, occurred in May that was organized by the National Association of Teachers of Singing, the American Choral Directors Association, mm-hmm. Chorus America, Barbershop Harmony Society, and the Performing Arts Medical Association. <laughs> um, yeah. There was this webinar that, that happened in May and many, many singers and um, voice users and uh, professional voice users and Mm-hmm. Um, medical professionals were participated in this and it was two and a half hours long you can actually watch the whole thing on YouTube still yeah. and uh, and it really instilled I think a lot of fear in a number of voice users voice practitioners and mm-hmm. and teachers as well and there was actually an article today in the New York Times about this issue and this hmm. webinar was cited and there was a doctor involved in the webinar at the Performing Arts Medical Association named mm-hmm. Lucinda Halstead. Okay. And she's quoted in this article. She says, I know that what I said made a lot of people depressed. For a singer, if they can't use their voice, they're completely disabled. It affects their self-worth. It affects everything. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a lot going on there. And I, I think you are... <laughs> one to guide us to guide us through that what do you what do you make of that Uh, well one of the things that uh, that i have been writing about is the idea of voice loss and what it does to singers Um, you know why it's so why it has such a traumatic effect on singers and i know that trauma is a complicated idea and i'm not using it metaphorically i think Mm -hmm. it's actually in a lot of ways literally traumatic for singers Mm -hmm. um for various reasons um and often the, the cause of voice loss can also be trauma. Yeah. Um, but the idea of voice as agency and voice as identity mm-hmm. are so, so embedded in the way that at least American singers and classically trained singers think about voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're so deeply intertwined that if one of them, if one of those um, 
if the voice or if identity or if the voice or agency is disturbed, then the other is also. So, um, so one thing that I, that I've been really focusing on is how a loss of voice feels like a loss of self and a loss of agency. Yeah. You know, what strikes me just in listening to you, and this may not be a great analogy. So I think that, um, there have been so many people, like I'm thinking about the fact that it's such a strange experience for so many singers to imagine, and I speak for myself as well as a singer, to imagine that one's singing voice is a dangerous thing, is a weapon. Um, and in a certain way, should should be lost, right? That, that, that there are certain aspects of the trauma um, that may be necessary, right? That Like it's a complicated thing to wrap one's head around. And I feel like there's something potentially similar going on with so many people who are now thinking at this moment in the country that there may be some kind of, just kind of becoming more aware of a deeply entrenched racism or sort of complicity in systemic racism that they themselves may be carrying that they weren't aware of. Like the way in which one's very self is dangerous and neat and um, is, is something that it is traumatic to contend with. I guess I'm conflating self with voice, which is probably exactly your point. I think there's a lot to unpack there. I, I think certainly for for white people, right, white people are, many white people are coming to the awareness that their voices are dangerous, right, mm. um, to a number of people, a mm. number of groups of people that, or, and, and I say there, I mean our, right? So white people are coming to this conclusion mm. that they should have, that we should have come to a long time ago, that mm. our voices present danger to other people, and that one of the things we have to focus on is listening rather than speaking hmm, hmm. Um, to to listen to marginalized voices mm-hmm. and in particular right now to black voices um and i i think that is to a degree i mean i wouldn't i don't know if i would call that literally traumatic but it is shocking for a lot of us um, hmm. i think that u.s culture especially for women um, and especially for white women, right? That we um, we are raised to believe that, um, in a, and this is from white feminism, right? From like second wave feminism, that we really need to speak up for ourselves. And mm-hmm. I think the ultimate result of that uh, exclusionary feminism from from the seventies, etc., um, has been the uh, the development of the Karen character, right? That everyone is is mocking right now, mm-hmm. um, but and we're mocking it, but we're also seeing that it is actually literally dangerous to people, and that it can kill people, right? That that mm. speaking up, that white women speaking up in the wrong way, right, and in the wrong context, and taking it too far, um, and with underlying racism, is going to actually impact the world in a in a terrible negative way right and and that i think that's very shocking for a lot of us sure sure i do think that um there's a set kind of in a complementary or or related way to what you're talking about there's also a sense of coming into a different kind of voice uh that black people are finding um 
that speaking up does have more power than it may have seemed to have in other moments. I don't know quite how to say that in a more interesting way, but maybe you can, maybe you can help me with your expertise in this area. I mean, you know, of course, the fight has been going on for for a very, very long time. Um, nothing that's happening now is is necessarily new, but there there has been such a confluence of bigotries and a confluence of violences and a confluence of um, especially federal and state and local policies that have impacted marginalized people in such dramatic ways in the last few years. Again, none of this is new, but things have kind of um, picked up speed in a way and come together in a way that in mm-hmm. a, a way that is so obvious that even white people can't miss it. <laughs> I don't know if that's the way to say it, right? But it's so clear, so yeah. crystal clear, right? Yeah. That we have to pay attention. And and I don't want to say like that it's because of white people giving the space to black voices that this is happening. No, I think black people are ta- are making this space, right? Sure, They're, sure. You know, and and in many cases taking that space that they need to have. Um, but there's, yeah, there is something different about this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think to maybe to bring it back to your idea of the, uh, or your raising for us to think about this topic of the dangerous voice, something we can consider to take away from this is which voices, in fact, you mentioned this <laughs> right before we started recording, there are some voices that have always been considered dangerous. Um, and I think maybe what I'm saying is maybe for some people who have felt, uh, people of color, black people who have felt that our voices are dangerous, we may feel less hemmed in or less um, concerned or less sort of forestalled by that sense of danger. Maybe the maybe our voices seem less dangerous and more powerful at the same time in this moment. I, I wonder, perhaps. So I was telling you about this story that I cited in my book um, and mm-hmm. it's, it's been told in a couple of different venues by Jamila Jones, um, who was a, is a civil rights activist. Um, and when she was very young in the 60s, she, she talks about this experience where she was at a Highlander folk school meeting in, um, in Monteagle. Um, mm-hmm. And this is, this is where you know, young people, and especially students, um, during the civil rights movement and the labor movement before it, really learned how to um, how to resist, right? Mm-hmm. The, the techniques of resistance. Mm-hmm. And during this meeting, and she's a teenager in this meeting. During this meeting, the police raided the uh, the venue, and mm. they turned out the lights. And she said she could only see the flashlights and the light glinting off of the guns, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I can't remember if it was her that started singing or someone else that started singing, but the group began singing We Shall Overcome. And she felt compelled to add a verse. So she started singing We Are Not Afraid. And this is where that verse came from We Are Not Afraid. Mm-hmm. And she says that the police, that a police officer came over to her and she could see that he was very nervous. And he said, shining the light in her face, you know, and holding the gun, yeah. if you have to sing, do you have to sing so loud? Yeah. Right. And at th- that moment, she realized the power of of that song and of her singing. Right. And yeah. um, I don't want to put any words in her mouth, but <laughs> um, but she she spoke about it a lot on the Library of Congress um, mm-hmm. uh, video. And 
And it is this moment, right, where the power of young Black voices is revealed. Not just the power to unsettle, but the power to actually make things happen, right? To, to mm -hmm. make change, that there is mm -hmm. actually power in that voice. Mm -hmm. I think as I'm kind of just sitting with all that you're bringing up, I feel like there are ways that I especially also really respond to in your book. Could I just, before I forget, mention course, one more please. thing about the dangerous yeah. voice? Because we had started talking about the coronavirus sure. and I totally got like distracted. Not at all. The, this article that came out in the New York Times today, um, it reminded me that the CDC website had given guidelines to faith communities on reducing mm. the risk of transmission of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And for a long time that, or when I say long time, I guess I mean a couple of months, that um, those instructions or those recommendations included limiting choral singing, yeah. um, really like recommending against it. And then mm -hmm. just recently, the, the CDC was um, enjoined by the White House to remove that. So now that is no longer there. Um, so it, mm. it's essentially that the federal government has sanctioned um, choirs in churches now that's basically like the result of this wow. and and on social media you know among my singer related um, friends there was a lot of discussion about you know um, whether the federal government you know understood um, that many people would die because of this and who did they want to die because of this and, yeah. and like the idea that that voice um, and community voice in particular yeah. was being used in this way um, that is really opposite of how we usually think about choral singing, right? Choral singing, a couple of years mm -hmm. ago, there were studies that said um, choral singing is so good for your health, right? Everybody's hearts beat in unison when yeah. they sing together. Sure. Um, you know, it's good for your mental health, etc. And um, and it's And we always understand it as like, a chorus singing is a voice of a group of people, right? Mm -hmm. um, but here it's, that is something that feels like that's something that's being used as a political tool in, wow. a, in a way that's just opposite the way that we usually think about it. A kind of weaponization. Yes, of, that's, of, that's yeah. exactly it. Yeah, good Wow. Word. Yeah. Oh, okay. thank you for bringing that up. Sorry no, about no, no, that. No. I just wanted to... Don't apologize. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think I want to make sure we also talk about the work in your book in addition to, um, in addition to what's going on. So I really appreciate the way that your scholarship does important work to trouble some of the entrenched notions of voice as a sort of very simple metaphor for agency and power. And I think that you encourage us to think about how we wield um, those notions uh, and, and think about that with more nuance. And one of the ways that you encourage us to do that is bringing really important discourses from disability studies into conversation with musical analysis. Um, so I want to bring up something else that you mentioned when we spoke in our kind of pre-conversation, um, which has to do with the extent to which a lot of the strategies for being together that are widely in use now during the pandemic, during social distancing, are not in fact new strategies, but actually strategies that um, disabled persons have been making use of for a long time. So I wonder if you could just say a little bit about your thoughts on this and what opportunities for accessibility exist in this moment um, during the pandemic, you know, what, what, whether you think this may be long lasting, <laughs> some of these shifts and the, or these embracing of new strategies. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, I, I think that there are a few 
threads at work here. That's probably the wrong way to say it. Uh, I think that there are a few <laughs> streams of thinking that yeah. are involved in this situation. And one of them is that in terms of social interaction, virtual interaction is devalued over mm -hmm. in-person interaction. Mm -hmm. um, now, personally, as a person, <laughs> I prefer in-person social interaction. However, uh -huh. there are many situations in which I myself am not able to be present um, due to disability mm -hmm. um, at, at various events. And I know many other people have experienced that for a long time and, and for, for many people, virtual social interaction is um, it is a boon, right? It's a wonderful thing, and it makes mm -hmm. it allows people to stay connected to the world in ways that they wouldn't be able to be otherwise. Now, in the situation of the pandemic, this is happening where, yes, you can you can put individual voices that, that have been recorded separately together in some beautiful beautiful collages, right? Mm -hmm. Like Eric Whitaker's. Um, virtual choir, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. I think started around 2009-ish. Mm -hmm. um, you can do that. But but since he did that, other people have been also making use of that process. And, um, you know, I know of several choirs in the UK that are made up of people who aren't able to sing together because of um, various disabilities and or medical issues. Mm -hmm. um, there is a cystic fibrosis choir. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a whole um, there was a whole, I don't think I mentioned this in the book, but there was a whole album um, called Choirs with Purpose. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the, the cystic fibrosis choir was one of these groups that, uh -huh. that is recorded on this album. I think it actually came together for this album. Um, wow. And then there was another group that I did mention in my book, if I can find that, um, called the Chronic Creatives Choir, mm -hmm. whose members mostly um, have diagnoses of myalgic encephalomyelitis, mm -hmm. um, which in the U.S. has often been called chronic fatigue syndrome, which mm -hmm. was a is an illness that also is often not believed in. Right. Um, right. But mm -hmm. is actually real. And um, so I have a quote in my book from the, the Chronic Creatives Choir website. Um, and they say we're a choir made up of people with chronic illnesses. Although we're not well enough to join ordinary choirs, we've been able to make music together long distance. Uh, we each record our parts at home separately, in some cases from bed. Some of us have to record in short sessions due to the illness rather than doing the whole song at once. And then their director puts everything together. Amazing. Um, and it is amazing. And yeah. the results are beautiful. Mm -hmm. And and so I guess one of the questions that we have to ask is, like, can we make room, especially now that, um, that non-disabled people have a better sense of what virtual social interaction means? Like, can mm -hmm. we make room for valuing um, ensembles and music made from a distance mm -hmm. because of these issues. Mm -hmm. I'm just so grateful to you for articulating that question because I think it is so important. And I think, you know, part of what I really responded to in your book was um, really, really kind of vulnerable and, and open engagement with the idea of loss and what we make of loss and how we experience it. And I think there's such a rush uh, and in particular, vocal vocal loss, as as we'll talk about probably in a bit, because that's the reading from your book for our duet. But um, 
I'm sure there are a lot of reasons to not characterize this um, opportunity as one uh, framed by loss, but I think there is a little bit of a rush to get get things back to business as usual that might um, kind of result in a hurrying past or an overlooking or a stepping stepping over some of these opportunities that you're speaking about and that really need to be talked about and discussed and and made and space made for. Absolutely. Can we talk now maybe a little bit about your book? So um, I am personally delighted because um, as soon as I started reading the introduction, I was just, I felt like something settled in me because the question of singing with many voices, right? So your book is called Multivocality. This idea of singing with many voices and negotiating identity across one's vocal borderlands is one that has characterized my own life. And... Um, is in fact also really central to my creative practice in musical theater where we do train and work in multiple vocal modes and it's one of the things that i find that has so much potentiality so much um has the potential to be so generative about musical theater although it is a a much maligned and quite complicated and issue-laden form but the fact that multiple voices are at work um, and that singers are expected to be multivocal uh, it's something that continues to excite me, and I just um, I'm so excited that you're writing uh, with such with such nuance and detail about this topic. Thank you. It was exciting to write. Um, the The book is really about singers. Right? Um, it's mm-hmm. not so much about the process of singing as or about listening, but but it's really about singers' experiences um, working on and across the borders of identity. And um, we know, of course, that identities are. Uh, we're looking at identities as less and less binary, right, Um, Mm -hmm. in the 21st century, which I also think is really exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wanted to be able to to think about how we use voice in those contexts in a number of different ways. And so I have a chapter on um, voice and gender transition. And I have to say that I regret already um, something from the book that I didn't do in the book, um, but uh-huh. I didn't talk about non-binary singers, and uh-huh. uh, and that is something I hope to do in the in- sure an invitation for future work. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I would like mm-hmm. definitely want to include it in my teaching. So, mm-hmm. um, but uh, so there's gender trans- transition. There's a chapter on singers who uh, who are deaf singers. So usually those are singers who grew up with some hearing and and used speech as a primary way of communicating until they became um, more deaf and joined deaf culture in certain ways, right? Mm-hmm. And so they straddle this border between deaf culture and hearing culture mm-hmm. and, and it's complicated, right? Yeah. Um, and then I have singers who cross genre boundaries, which doesn't sound quite as entangled with identity, but it really is, as you know, mm-hmm. um, somebody who is working in different vocalities. Mm-hmm. Um, Sure, and I was really struck by the way that a lot of the singers you write about um, use this or work through these negotiations, and and I think the um, the language of the borderlands is really apt because sometimes people are work are working to locate themselves in their voice and across their voices, and it, it, I don't know quite know how to say it, but there is a sense of locating who and where one is. Um, in voice, and and you can really see that story, or or really feel that story emerging um, as you've mapped it for us. There's a pressure for singers 
to discover a true authentic voice that represents their self, right? Yes. Um, and especially in classical vocal training and probably in musical theater training as well in some and ways. And in acting training, yeah. absolutely. No, this is so important to talk about. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so one of the things that, um, that I've been really excited about writing um, about has been the amount of choice that we have in vocality that we don't talk about. And I'm not saying that anybody can do anything, mm-hmm. but I feel that that narrative of the one true voice can be damaging in certain ways, um, maybe even more damaging than freeing, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I love it. I'm so excited. So what I would <laughs> love you. to do <laughs> is um, is do a little reading from your book. So uh, this really, um, I really responded to this part of the book um I guess partly because I have a lot of singer friends who um are confronted with the possibility of not having careers right now because of the pandemic um and it's a kind of a violence uh that people are grappling with and um I guess I'll just I guess I'll just say that much okay so here we go uh I feel weird saying, but in my research, when it's your research, but we'll (laughs) understand it's you. (laughs) Here we go. But in my research over the past few years, I have encountered a number of singers with experience in losing a singing voice without a loss of speech. I've heard their borderlands voices consistently tell of crossings between geographical spaces, between ways of singing, between ways of being. Chapter four of this book discussed T.L. Forsberg's voice loss as she tried to negotiate the deaf and hearing aspects of her identity and song and sign. Joseph Clipp and Simon Devoil in chapter six experienced a kind of double voice loss in the process of affirming masculine identities, a temporary loss of range and flexibility and a permanent loss of their pre-transition sonorities. This present chapter includes a voice lost in a silencing marriage the voice of a Syrian refugee who could not sing for a year after she immigrated to the United States, and a voice lost in the crossing of both the Atlantic and the musical borders between genres. Finally, it discusses the work of a singer-songwriter-activist who is attempting to give chronically ill singers like herself back their sense of voice in the face of epistemic injustice. Nearly all of these individuals are singing again now, having experienced voice as a part of the self that can be both lost and found, sometimes at the same time. Like me, they did not lose all phonation or the capability of speech, but rather, they lost another kind of voice control, required to produce both the broad and the delicate sonic strokes that make up a singing style. The experience of loss when a professional singing voice is disrupted is entangled not only in the expressive and embodied nature of vocality, but also in neoliberalism, in which labor and its value are understood as core components of identity. In a neoliberally grounded music industry, losing a voice can feel like losing one's value and like a devastating loss of identity. Additionally, voice loss is often understood as a health-related deficit, and health in a neoliberal society can become a kind of moral imperative. As David T. Mitchell and Sharon Snyder assert, in neoliberalism, quote, nearly all bodies, unquote, 
our sites continuously in need of improvement and are, quote, referenced as debilitated and in need of market commodities to shore up their shortcomings, unquote. Incapacity, they write, has become an increasingly fluid shorthand term for individual citizens' responsibilities within biopolitics for their own body management, unquote. If singers don't protect their voices, they have failed as commodities. But as neoliberal subjects, they must continue striving to improve. I just want to say this was brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited oh, to you. share this. Yeah. It's always really, really gratifying when someone is excited about what you write. So, so thank you um, for of the course. opportunity to, to talk about this. And thank you for the work you're doing. I think it's really important. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's it. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll stay safe, stay strong, and return for my next episode when I plan to host performance scholar, composer, and singer Elias Krell and composer, vocalist, and dramatist Abigail Bengtsson of The Bengtsons. Until then. <laughs>